So the numbers are in and they are exciting. 84% of the people we polled knew about it. And 56% of those who knew believed strongly that it was true. What was true? Good question. But more importantly, 76% of them claimed it would affect their vote. Now this compares pretty unfavourably with our last poll, in which only 64% of people knew of it. How many people did you poll? Another great question. Now that polling period did occur during trying circumstances. Do, Do not mention, mention the, the incident. incident. So it seems belief is up. Way up. Belief in what, though? An excellent question. You ask great questions, Joe. We really appreciate having your expertise on this. But you're not actually paying attention to the issues I'm raising here. Very true. Now, turning to the second question, 26% of people claim not to believe the results of the first question. Fucking unbelievable. Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Edison and Dr. M. Denton. Hello and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. Uh, I am Josh Edison in Auckland, New Zealand, and all the way back down south in Kirikiriroa, Hamilton, New Zealand, it's Dr. M. Denton. For one week, one glorious week, we actually managed to co-locate, but wasn't to last. No, it was not to be. Some mm. of us have to be kept separated, whether it be by law, by ethics, or by act of God. Mm. Uh, so basically back to business as usual, really. Um, now we have another another uh, interview episode for you, but before we get into that, I understand we have a new patron? We do indeed. Now, as is customary, we'll be introducing this new patron in our opening sketch next week just for the sheer fact that by the time we had the new patron, we also had a prepared sketch for this week relating to the guest of this week, which meant we had to shift things by one week. And that's just the way that the media works. Just life. Mm. It's true. But more importantly, Josh, because we'll focus on the importance of a new patron next week, I believe you should have some thoughts about something I've written. I'm not saying I have no thoughts, but yes, no. So that that paper you've been working on with a cast of thousands, I gather, um, is out and and live and dangerous to know. Um, yeah, I, mean, I, I did read it, honest to goodness. Um, I skipped through a lot of the statistics-y stuff and kind of concentrated on the stuff that it seemed most obvious you had written. Um, but... I yeah I I, I to, to be honest I have no firm opinions other than it was an interesting read. Now for those of you who are going, what is Josh talking about? Given his complete failure to contextualize what's mm, been talked context. about. Context, we don't need context. Uh, I am a co-author on a new paper which has been put out by Tapunaha Matatini, which is a think tank slash research group operating out of the University of Auckland as led by Kate Hanna and we've produced a paper called COVID-19 Disinformation in Aotearoa New Zealand Social Media, also known as COVID-19 New Research Prevalence and Nature of COVID-19 Disinformation in Aotearoa New Zealand Social Media. So if you go to the Tapunaha Matatini website you'll get a link to the PDF. There's also a layperson's version of it up on the spin-off, which now I think about it, maybe that's what I should have directed you to read, Josh. 
Maybe you should have, but I'll hunt that one down as well. For the sheer fact, there's a lot less data to crunch. There's a lot more mm. prose to read. Right. Very good. So has it, um, <clears throat> aside from aside from being um, summarised in the spin-off, has it received much attention? Well, yes. I mean, I've received an awful lot of media inquiries based upon that paper. So I've been quoted in Stuff, Newsroom, Manawatu, Herald, uh, RNZ, there's a whole bunch of media outlets in this country who, having read the paper, wanted comment on some of the claims. Because the big claim we make in that paper is that despite appearances, there is really no big surge or indeed any real change in COVID-19 disinformation or conspiracy theories going on at the moment. Things are remarkably stable and also not particularly prevalent, and people are going, that doesn't seem to square with our experience of stuff on social media, particularly our experience of Facebook. Now, the paper does not cover Facebook for a whole bunch of logistical re reasons, one of which is Facebook does not let you scrape data, and if they catch you doing it, they ban your account. So... We cannot look at the Facebook data in the same way we can look at the Twitter data, but it does seem that things are not as bad as maybe people in the media are presenting it as being. And that's what I'm being questioned on. How do we square the research results with how people are seeing things in the world? And that quite nicely ties into the discussion that I had with Joe Yusinski earlier this week. Yes, because in that discussion, the, the the shoe's kind of on the other foot there. You're the one grilling Joe about the fact that his findings uh, don't conform to what we think we're seeing, or at least they, they don't feel right. Yes, and I think the they don't feel right is a really, really interesting term, and mm. we'll probably come back to that when we have what we should call Josh's commentary after the interview that I conducted. Hmm. Um, so I don't think we have anything else to say. Shall we just go straight ahead and play the interview? We shall indeed. Let's roll that tape. I'm talking with Joe Yusinski, an associate professor in political studies at the University of Miami, and I will note for the purposes of how this discussion is going to go a friend. I'm talking with Joe today about polls and what they tell us about belief in certain conspiracy theories in the here and now. And I'm going to pretend to not know much about polling in order to get something on the record about the disjunct between what certain academics and people in the media are saying and what Joe is seeing in his research work. A lot of this came out of my talking with David Farrier two weeks ago, after he had talked with Joe, and how it's very tempting to go, I recognise what Joe is seeing, but surely the real story is based upon purely anecdotal data. So hello, Joe. I hope things in sunshine, sunshine state, apparently that's very hard for me to say, I hope things in the <laughs> sunshine state are, well, at least sunny at the moment. Well, they are indeed sunny, and uh, um, it's a very beautiful here. Uh, the COVID infection rate has come down um, from where it was spiking in the summer. Uh, school's back in session, and uh, things are fairly normal. They actually have me teaching in person, um, but I'm teaching uh, in the basketball stadium. So because my class is so big, um, I'm teaching at center court, 
between the two basketball nets and then the kids are, each have their own uh, row up in the in the sections and the rafters um, and they have my face up on the jumbotron <laughs> i like the fact that you said things are normal here i'm teaching in the basketball course <laughs> yeah. I, I mean in many respects actually she kind of what i expect of florida anyway yeah i mean it's it, it, it's it, it, there is a lot of bad behavior here that i notice i mean it's not uh, uh, miami is not a city that's like hey, that's an intellectual place. It's a city based on tourism and fun and margaritas and beach and this and that. Um, so, you know, we were walking around this weekend, my wife and I, and you see just big groups of people, no masks on, getting on and off of boats, doing all sorts of behaviors they shouldn't be engaging in. It's the tourism city, so that only makes it worse. Um, but the, the university's done a really good job with it. Um, as far as that can possibly go. And I'm fairly comfortable on campus, but things haven't changed much for me since March. It's, I, you know, work out of my bedroom. And when I do teach, I teach two classes in person uh, during the week. I drive right to the class, do it and leave both nights. And that's, and, and that's about it. So until there's a vaccine, I'm sort of, um, you know, uh, I guess it's sort of dug in. Yes, I think for a lot of people, you are describing how their work life now now pro proceeds. You huddle at home until such time you have to rush into your workplace, get your work done as quickly as possible, and then you run back home into the protective cover of the of the. I'm I'm assuming the Florida mansion in which you live. Yeah, the Florida mansion. Uh, <laughs> I would say that I'm a mole person, but that has its own connotation in the QAnon world. Where they, <laughs> so I don't want to say that, but it's sort of, I sort of feel like that in the sense that I, you know, I'm in one place, I pop my head out every once in a while, and that's about it. See, <laughs> so you should be describing yourself as a chud, a cannibaloid, humanoid, underground <laughs> dweller. That would really get on the Q QAnon radar. Yeah. So the only thing that wouldn't work with that is I'm 23 floors in the air. So, ah, we'll find some way around that. We'll find now, a thing. <laughs> now, talking. I guess it'd be a Chad. Oh, yeah. The the aerial cannibaloid humanoid dweller, Chad and Chud. The Chud to the yeah. But then that that that's not good in Florida either because we have our own history with hanging Chads. So. Yes, you really do, and that's a whole different conspiracy theory. Let's focus on the QAnon one because the media recently have been making out a lot about QAnon and COVID nineteen conspiracy theories being rife and being persuasive. And it seems that you're saying something quite different from what you're seeing in your research work. So what's going on, Joe? So what I want to do is talk about my and others polling data and how that is contrasting with what the headlines are. So let me just give you a handful of examples of what recent headlines in the mainstream news are. And that way it will really sort of hammer home the point that um, that what I'm finding is not what the headlines are saying. So Los Angeles Magazine, August 17th headline, Inside QAnon, the conspiracy cult that's devouring America. Washington Post, August 16th, QAnon is a menace. 
ignoring it isn't an option. CNN, August 15th, QAnon is conspiratorial, dangerous, and growing, and we're talking about it all wrong. Um, NPR, 814, why you should care about QAnon. Wall Street Journal, 813, QAnon booms on Facebook as conspiracy group gains mainstream traction. Um, the, the New York Times, 813, think QAnon is on the fringe? So was the Tea Party. Um, NBC, 810, QAnon groups have millions of members on Facebook, documents show. New York Times, 813, the rise of QAnon. Uh, NBC News, 814, um, how QAnon rode the pandemic to new heights. Um, insider, QAnon is leaking into the mainstream, moving from internet fringes to primetime cable news as Americans keep falling for the unfounded conspiracy theory. Bloomberg, 8-8, QAnon is running amok. Um, so I, I, I think you get the idea at this point, and I can keep going on. I've got a long list of these where the claim is very clearly that this is big, getting bigger, it's going mainstream, it's running amok. And a second claim that I'll, I'll get to, I think, is, is equally important, that is that it's far right in some meaningful way, and that it's taking over the, the Republican Party. Um, but these are the claims that are repeatedly made in mainstream news. So the question is, what data backs up any of these claims, or are journalists just making stuff up? Now, Joe, you're asking my 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 questions here. I want to say, what what <laughs> what is the evidence that backs up these claims, and are journalists making stuff up? So the evidence that's usually brought to bear by the journalists is, well, we can see this online. There are people discussing this on Twitter, and there are a number of Facebook groups, and there are people interacting with these groups, and there's hashtags that trend every so often. But none of those things are good indicators of public opinion writ large. You know, not all internet use is authentic. Um, some people are trolls. Um, I mean, some of this stuff is mechanized. Um, I don't know how much, and it's hard to tell. Um, but again, at least some portion of this is inauthentic or it's the same user doing multiple things. Um, another thing that's brought to bear often in these discussions is, well, there was a rally for Trump and some people wore Q shirts. Or there was a rally for Save the Children and some people had Q and on signs. None of those are good indicators of public opinion writ large. Um, so, I mean, they're interesting anecdotes and they tell us something, but they don't tell us change over time and they don't tell us uh, about how many of these believers there are out in the world. And I think we have to be very careful at, at, at making big generalizations from these anecdotes. Like we would never say, oh, I think Joe Biden's gonna win the election because there's a bunch of Joe Biden Facebook groups. I mean, anyone making that claim would be laughed out of town. So I don't know why we're seeing that as okay in this instance. I mean, those are interesting issues because I'm currently involved in a project here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, looking at the prevalence of COVID-19 disinformation in social media. And certainly all the results that we're getting 
indicate that actually not only is there not much discussion of COVID-19 disinformation or conspiracy theories going on, it's also not growing. It's remarkably stable and at a really low level. And yet our journalistic class here is doing exactly the same thing. They go, oh, we've got masses of COVID-19 conspiracy theories. It's a deep, pervasive threat to the polis. And the actual social media data is going, it doesn't appear to be a big issue at all. Most people have no idea why journalists are talking about it, but they are thinking that because they're reading it in news stories, it must be a big issue. They're just not seeing it themselves. Here's the thing, is that if you start focusing on this one thing, then you're going to find it everywhere, right? Because you're looking for it. And it, that that would be the same thing. Like, you could pick any conspiracy theory that's been around for a few years and start finding it, and you will find some politicians who've engaged with it, and you'll find a bunch of people who have signs for it at some rally somewhere, and you'll find somebody with a T-shirt, you know, I used to go to anti-GMO rallies just because there was a lot of conspiracy rhetoric there. And um, what I found, there was always 9-11 people walking around, people, you know, with CIA conspiracy theories and all sorts of other stuff. And if I was focusing on it, then I'd be like, aha, it looks like this conspiracy theory has taken over. Um um, the GMO movement, <laughs> when in fact that's not what's really happening. Yes, there's a, I think there's a kind of associated thing which I was talking with a journalist about yesterday, which is notability. If you're concerned, if you're, say, a crime reporter, you tend to write on violent crime. If violent crime is going down, then suddenly every instance of violent crime looks much more noteworthy because of how rare it typically is. So you want to write about it because it's a really notable story, which then has the onflow effect of people are going, oh, there's been a flurry of violent crime stories in the paper recently. Crime must be going up, but it's only appearing more often in the paper because of how rare crime has actually become. I mean, that's a really good example because there are studies of exactly that um, going back decades where they say the actual rates of crime do not match up with crime reporting. I mean, those are two very different things. So if your only view of the outside world was what you were reading in the papers, you'd be living in a, in a different world, right? And, and that's the same thing here. And I, I think there's other, there's other issues here too. I think that there are some incentives and again, I don't want to impugn anybody's intentions or motives. Um, they need to speak for themselves. But I think some of this QAnon coverage is very clickable. So that you get these, you know, headlines that say, oh, it's mainstream and taking over, you know, because people are going to click on that. That's more, quote unquote, newsworthy than saying, oh, it's stable and small, <laughs> which people might not click on. Um, so there are financial incentives here for, for the news outlets to hype it up in the headlines, at least. I think there are reporters who are on the fake news and conspiracy beat who, you know, whose career incentives are now attached to this potentially being bigger than it really is. Um, but here's the thing is that if you're reporting on this, you don't have to say it's bigger than it is. It can be just as important at the size that it is now. You don't have to inflate it. 
Yeah, and this is actually um, a point which I've been making about COVID-19 conspiracy theories. Even if it turns out there aren't that many COVID-19 conspiracy theorists operating in New Zealand, it only requires a few people to believe them for them to act differently. So not wear masks, yeah. not engage in social distancing, not wash their hands, at which point they become a vector for the disease. So it's still worth yeah. reporting on. You just don't want to overhype the level of support. It's still important, regardless of how many it is. And obviously, if it's bigger, it becomes worse. But even if it's 10% of people who say, well, I don't think COVID's real and I'm not going to wear a mask, that's a serious, serious problem. You don't have to lie and say it's taken over the world. <laughs> right? We can be honest with the numbers and, and still have a serious problem on our hands that's worth reporting, worth reading about, and worth addressing. I and mean, it's the same thing with QAnon. Even if it's a handful of people, I think it's still it's still worth exploring why people have these these views and these ideologies and um, and given people who have acted um, based on some of these ideas with deleterious consequences, it's still worth looking at. But we, we need to be very honest here about, you know, how many people it is and exactly what's driving that behavior and why. Yes, I think that's a very important question. So what do your poll results say? So let me start out with this. I mean, QAnon has become prominent in reporting partially because, you know, partially for two reasons. One is because you've had some people act on these ideas. You had somebody take over the Hoomer Dam. You had somebody shoot a crime uh, mob boss. You had a, a, and kill him. You had a. Uh, a, a woman run her car into a bunch of pedestrians thinking she was saving children. Um, there was another woman who went sort of viral um, on social media because she trashed a, a mask aisle at a Target department store. So there are instances that are sort of bizarre and you're like, oh my God, people are acting on this. And, you know, it sort of makes it think like everyone's acting on it and it's happening all the time. But here's the thing, when you read these stories a little bit further, down and you get to the ninth or 15th paragraph, you find that it, some of these people are mentally ill. I mean, the guy who shot the mafia boss is, is, has been deemed incompetent to stand trial. The woman who ran her car into pedestrians, when you read the ninth paragraph of the story, it says she has a long history of untreated mental illness and was drunk um, when, she, when she did this. Uh, the person who freaked out at Target it uh, turned out she had uh, manic uh, bipolar depression disorder, and this was exacerbated by the pandemic in which I think she lost her job and was isolated for a long period of time. So what what's getting conflated in some of these stories is that these are vulnerable people um, who have uh, untreated illnesses, and they've, in some ways, it looks like they've been left behind. So is the real story QAnon, or is the real story um, something else? And I would submit that it's at least something else. And, and, and that something else may have made them vulnerable to this stuff, this QAnon stuff. But, you know, the majority of people who are engaging with QAnon aren't going out and doing these sorts of things. So I think this is more of an issue of how we're ignoring mental illness in, in many places around the world, and we shouldn't be. 
right? Because um, these are the sorts of things that will happen when you when you choose to do that. Um, so that's one part. So it, what I've been doing for the last two and two and a half years is is polling either the state of Florida, for reasons I'll get into in a minute, or the U.S. as a whole. So in 2018, a bunch of Trump, a bunch of Q supporters wore Q T-shirts to a Trump rally, and that sparked a whole lot of mainstream news coverage in the summer of 2018. So I just happened to have a poll about to go out in Florida. So I threw QAnon on there, and I did it as a feeling thermometer, where I said, how much do you support the QAnon movement on a scale from zero to 100, with 100 being you really don't like it, and uh, or excuse me, zero being you don't like it, 100 being you really, really like it. And we also threw some other things on there. Um, and just as, a, as a, a, a testing mechanism, we also put Fidel Castro. And if you know anything about Florida, you know we don't like Castro here. <laughs> Everyone danced in the street when he, when he died. Uh, QAnon on average in the summer of 2018 was about a 24, Castro was about a 22. So not well liked. Um, and further, it wasn't any more liked by Republicans than by Democrats. I think there was only a few point difference on average. And once you account for the for people's worldviews, like if they saw uh, the world through a conspiratorial lens, partisanship was not a predictor of how they rated QAnon. So not far right, not well liked. A lot of people didn't rate it because they didn't know what it was, so not well known. So all the all the things that were being said about it then were as far as I could tell, wrong. I continued those polls both online, um, no, excuse me, both across the country and in Florida, you know, with a few follow-ups and have found the same thing repeatedly. And I've done some more extensive polling where we asked the question in the same way. And we say, well, how much do you like QAnon? But then we'll also go through and ask about other psychological characteristics. So not only their conspiratorial worldviews, but their what's called the dark triad, uh, which is sort of antisocial psychological characteristics, uh, sociopathy, Machiavellianism, and narcissism. And what we find is that the most significant predictors of this, of QAnon support, are uh, the dark triad and conspiracy thinking. And also we asked the question, you know, do you sometimes share false information online? And that also predicts belief in QAnon. So you get a personality profile of these people who like QAnon who are narcissistic Machiavellian sociopaths who see the world through a conspiratorial lens and like to uh, share fake stuff online. Now, I, I don't wanna paint everyone with such a broad brush. And again, we're talking about relative levels rather than absolute levels of these things. So it's not like everyone is a deranged lunatic sociopath, but but they we're finding that the people who really like it have heightened levels of these things. And so what we're finding now is that QAnon is sort of a different kind of extremism. It's not a left-right extremism. It's not a partisan extremism. It's not far-right in any meaningful sense. It's, it's based on other personality traits. So you got to think for a little bit, who's that person who's going to fall into that belief that satanic baby eaters control the government and be able to hold on to it 
in spite of evidence to the contrary and it not really being supported anywhere mainstream. That's going to be somebody who's probably a little bit narcissistic. They're right and they know it. You know, somebody who's a little bit sociopathic, they can buy into these ideas despite everyone else not buying into it and pushing back against it. So, so that's, that's what I would submit at this point. Um, that's, that's my thinking now. And, but, but I think there's some broader lessons there to think about, both in terms of conspiracy theory beliefs and in terms of political extremism. So just to start with the latter, I don't think that, that a lot of what we call political extremism is really an outcropping of extreme partisanship or a constrained conservative liberal ideology. I think it's something else. And in terms of conspiracy beliefs, I think that there are some um, that probably might get started by politics. But think about what, what does it take to hold on to the idea that, you know, whether it's satanic baby eaters control the government, there's got to be other factors, personality factors that allow someone to have that for a long period of time. Right, it's not just going to be political views. It's going to be personality views that allow people that allow people to to have those ideas. So this is all information which is basically coming out of the polling data and associated analysis of those polls. So we yeah. should probably actually talk about how these polls are done because a lot of people, and as I said at the top of the show, I sometimes have this kind of gut reaction will go, but hold on, why should we trust your fancy mathematical polling data over what I experience in my day-to-day -day life on social media? So tell, tell the audience something about how these polls are done and why we should be trusting the polling data rather than our own anecdotal experiences. So polling is like anything else. It could be, it could be done well or it could be done poorly, right? So it's not that you should trust all polls, um, but if there are polls that have reasonable samples, you know, a thousand or more people, that, that represent the population that you're trying to speak to and have questions that are um, written in a way that would tap what you're trying to talk about, um, then, then it seems reasonable, um, you know, not to trust it 100% blindly, but when you have different polls doing different things, coming out with similar answers, that, then I, I become fairly strong in, in my view of the evidence. If it's just a one-shot poll, could be wrong. If it's poorly worded, I'm not going to pay attention to it. If it's a bad sample, you know. Um, but but let me line up the evidence that makes me fairly um, um, certain of my conclusions thus far. Now, that being said, people can change their minds in the future, and Q might become, you know. Um, you know, tomorrow's ice cream Sunday that everybody wants. Because yeah, you know, po polls are just you know, a snapshot of it, of time. It's a snapshot. Tape. Yeah. Yeah. So what I've been doing is I've polled both Florida and the U.S. with samples of more than two thousand people, which have been taken online, and and the samples that we get are people who one when they take our polls have to pass attention checks, so they're not just plugging in nonsense, and two, um, the, the the samples match census data for what. 
um, both the state of Florida or in my national polls, what the US looks like. So we're getting a pretty reasonable um, sample of people. And in my polls, as I mentioned, we just say rate the QAnon movement your support from it from zero to 100. So we're not getting into, is it the deep state version? Is it the satanic baby eating version? Is it, is it some other version? Um, we're not conflating it with, with different ideas. Um, it's just straight up QAnon support. And it's very low in that method. And that's been consistent over two years. There was a Pew poll that came out in March of this year that asked people, um, how much do you know about QAnon? 75% responded that they knew nothing. Uh, about 20 some odd percent said that they uh, knew a little and 3% said they knew a lot. So for something that we're saying has gone mainstream and taking over, I mean, by March of this year, where it had already gotten a lot of coverage up to that point for two years, um, nobody knew about it. You know, three quarters of Americans knew nothing about it. There was an Emerson poll last August. Again, even last August, QAnon had received a lot of, uh, August of 2019. Even then, QAnon had received a lot of coverage. Um, and that asked people a straight up yes or no question. Do you believe QAnon? And I think only 5% said yes. So, this is, this is one of those things where you've got my data telling a story act, that's asked in one way over multiple samples over two years. You've got the Pew data getting to knowledge of it. And you've got the Emerson data just asking a straight up question, do you believe it? And they're all pointing in the same direction. And that direction is opposite of where the headlines are pointing, right? So... So something's, you know, sound like a conspiracy theory. Something's going on, right? And I'm more willing to 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 go with the um, the polling data than I am with just the headlines. Now, this is the point where I'm going to ask you the gotcha question. Although I've already pre I've already prepared you as to what this gotcha question is going to be, because there was a poll which came out earlier this month, run by Daily Kos, the Civics poll, which states. Awareness of QAnon has grown substantially since one year ago. In July 2019, 35% of Americans had never heard of QAnon. That number has fallen to 14% now. So they're suggesting a massive number, 86% of the population, knows about QAnon. That seems to go against what you've just said. Yeah, so if you look through that question... I have it in front um, of what me you now. Find is it's, it's, it's sort of a triple-barreled question where they say, well, um, do you believe the QAnon theory? And I, I, I don't remember the exact wording. Um, actually, do you I'll, QAnon I'll give theory? you the... I've, I've got the question here. Okay. Do you believe that the QAnon theory about a conspiracy among deep state elites is true? And the, the, the answers were, yes, mostly true, 16%. Yes, some mm. parts are true, 16%. No, not true at all, 43%. I've never heard of QAnon, 14%. Unsure, 11%. Yeah, so first thing you can take away there is that, as you point out, is there's a massive jump in people knowing about it, right? Um, between what Pew found in March and what this is suggesting now. Um, but let's just start with the question wording, is you're sort of conflating QAnon 
conspiracy uh, with deep state and elites. And each of those can be their own trigger, right? Um, and so people may be saying yes, simply for one part of that and not for the other parts of it. Then when you get to the answer set, it's like, oh, I believe a lot of it, some of it, and then don't know about it. So you, now you're conflating what they know um, with how much they agree. So they may be agreeing with something they never heard of before, right? And, and so a better way to do this question would be, you know, if you want to talk, if you're concerned about QAnon and that people are supporting it because it has satanic sex pedophiles and baby eaters who control the government, then you should be asking that directly. But if you're just talking about deep state elites, that's, very, that's a much more banal question. I mean, when I poll on, do you believe there's a, a deep state that's unaccountable embedded within the government, we get 55% of Americans saying, yeah, they agree with that. That's a fairly widely held belief. Um, but obviously the QAnon version of baby eating Satanists is much more specific and probably a little bit more concerning. So if you're gonna talk about QAnon, that's more the version you wanna get into rather than just these more benign widespread ideas. Um, so that's my concern or those are some of my concerns with that question, but how this has been interpreted by the media is one of those things where, again, it's making me pull my hair out um, because you know when I was talking to journalists before this poll came out, they said, "Well, polling isn't good, you know, for getting to something like this. Polling, you know, people aren't going to tell you the truth or." It's not the right mechanism for measuring this. And you know, you can have your polls and Pew can have its polls and Emerson can have its polls. It's all fine and good, but polls aren't the right way. Soon as a poll comes out that tells people what they want to hear, then all of a sudden, oh, it's the best poll ever. <laughs> so so all their objections to my polling had nothing to do with the methodology. And again, I was pointing out my own polls and multiple ones in other polls from other houses. Um, and, and they want to discard all of it because they don't like polling. But then as soon as they hear something, what they want, wow, this is great. This polling is perfect. That's telling me what I want to know. And that's, that's garbage. That's just motivated reasoning at play here. Yes, there is something quite interesting, as you say, about people going, well, when the poll suits me, I'm going to go, yes, polling is great. But when the poll is not good, I'm going to ignore it, which of course we see with political parties all the time. Political parties love polls, except from when they absolutely hate polls. And you can kind of tell when yeah. they love a poll is when the poll says exactly what the party wants the poll to say. And I think we all kind of take polling data in exactly the same way. Yeah, especially in this case, and it's it's really bad. But I, I mean, in, in the field that you and I work in, I mean, there's been a lack of measurement for many decades and measurement only started in, you know, maybe 10 or 12 years ago. And it's only become a little more rigorous since then. But there have been claims made by journalists going back decades that say, this is the time of conspiracy theory. Everyone's more conspiratorial now. This is the time, this is the golden age, this is the apex. And first of all, it can't always be true. But second of all, it's said in newspapers every year. It's said in newspapers probably every week now. and But it's not based on anything. Like, what are they basing this on? They have, I mean, you're making an empirical claim 
that speaks to you know phenomenon occurring over time. But all they're doing is licking their thumb, putting it to the wind, and saying, "Well, it feels like now." Well, that's no way to to buttress a claim like that. That's not right. Um, so, I, 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 I guess this is something that's emblematic of cons conspiracy theories uh, coverage of it for for decades, where there's not good data out there, and and journalists have just grown used to saying whatever they feel like. And and I think at this point, I've been fairly um, forthcoming with my data. I published it in the Washington Post. I've now done stuff in the Guardian, in the in in the in Canadian newspapers, in the Daily Post and Mail. I, I just past week I was in the New York Daily News making the same points. And so there's no reason for anyone to ignore any of this at this point. Um, so um, it's it doesn't mean they have to agree with me, um, but it just means that if they're going to make a claim that runs counter to the available evidence, they gotta have good reason for doing it and shouldn't just be making stuff up. Yeah, so as, as you were saying that, I was thinking about a question I was asked by a journalist yesterday, and she asked, do you think there's more talk about conspiracy going on in our local body politics here? And my response was, I'm actually probably the worst person to ask about that because my day job <laughs> is looking for examples of conspiracies to use in my work. So I'm finding lots of examples out there, but I'm deliberately looking for stuff and know where to look. You need to actually yeah. be asking the common people going, are you seeing more of this? Not asking specialists who go, no, actually, I look for this stuff. And I think that's kind of endemic issue in our profession. When someone becomes interested in conspiracy theories, they start looking for examples of them in the literature. They suddenly find a lot more than they were expecting to find and thus they think it's a major issue but it might only be a case of we've just not been looking in the right direction and this stuff has just been in the background but at a low level since time immemorial yeah selective perception is going on there too i mean i'll, I'll i i will say this is that i i started a google alert on a bunch of terms about nine years ago with conspiracy and conspiracy theory being two of them. I used to get back about five articles a day that had the term conspiracy theory in it from Google. Um, since that time, particularly after 2015, 2016, it's about a hundred a day. So journalists are writing about this a lot more than they ever did previously. And you could do other, uh, you know, you could look at individual news outlets too. You go to the New York Times, say how much are they, how many articles mentioned conspiracy theory in the last year versus 20, 30, 40 years ago. And you find it's a lot more now. So that's happening. Um, it, we are paying, the, the, the press is paying more attention. I think it's also clear that prominent political elites are engaging in this more. Um, I say, I say that largely just because of, of, of Trump and, and a few others who engage in this rhetoric. Um, they're, they're, I don't think there have been clear studies on, you know, looking at large swaths of political elites over time and then and tracking it. But I'm pretty comfortable in saying just with Trump's influence and a few other politicians' influence that this has become a, a, a bigger form of political communication and rhetoric in the last few years. 
But with that being said, that's different than saying the public believes it more. So just because the media reports on something and just because politicians engage with it more doesn't mean more people are believing in it. And it could very well just be a case of activation where politicians are trying to activate something with conspiratorial rhetoric that's already there. So they're not changing minds. Instead, what they're doing is just trying to pull people into their coalition who are already co-pathetic with this this um, whatever theory they want to talk about at this time. And there are good examples of this. A lot of the candidates who've, who are quote unquote linked to QAnon running for Congress or whatnot have tweeted out QAnon hashtags and whatnot. Well, that's bad. And I think, I don't think that's a good thing, but when you ask them a little bit about it, what some of them have said as well, I'm just reaching out to that community. I'm not necessarily a believer. So, so they're using it as a signal, but they're not expressing a belief. And it's not true. They're trying to change anyone's minds either. They're just trying to activate people who already exist. Yes. And I mean, this is actually, I think, a very good point that just because someone makes a vague reference or a hand gesture, which may signal to the Q community they're aware of them, doesn't make them a true believer. They actually might be acting very insincerely to bring those people on board. I mean, we saw that here with the deputy leader of the opposition party just asking questions about the government's response to COVID-19 in a way which was a dog whistle towards conspiracy theories, even though Jerry Brownlee said, I'm not being a conspiracy theorist, I'm just asking questions. Yeah, so that is that is absolutely going on. Um, but it's... It, it, I think the media is making some issues, some issues here too, is that you, you have had some people, um, so I'll give you a good example of this. I was interviewed about a California legislator in the state house who tweeted, save the children, hashtag save the children. And this had gotten bound up with some QAnon stuff in the weeks previous, because there were some save the children rallies and there were some QAnon people engaged with this and, and whatnot. But the reason why this legislature, legislator had, had tweeted something would save the children on it was because the legislature was voting on uh, legislation that would um, at least limit the amount of time someone would be labeled as a sex offender after a conviction. So she was against that and she put out, we shouldn't pass this stuff and hashtag save the children. So then major news outlets did stories on her where they said, well, you know, she's engaging in QAnon rhetoric. And they called me and they said, what do you say about this? I said, well, I don't see the QAnon rhetoric. I said, it could be something related to QAnon, but you don't know until you ask. And you're just making an assumption that somehow this is indicative of that when it's not. And so they got in touch with the person's office and they said, no, we're not QAnon at all. We just want to save children. Of course, the study goes, you know, excuse me, the, the story runs anyway um, in the news outlets. And they say, oh, well, she's now endorsing QAnon. <laughs> it's like, well, she said she's not. She hasn't said anything QAnon specific, yet you're making this claim anyway. Now, it could be true, but you just don't have any evidence for it. Um, so, and, and I understand how politicians might be coy with these sorts of things, right? And I, and I get it. But you know, unless, the, if she's going to say she's not supporting QAnon, 
and you don't have any specific QAnon references, then you shouldn't be drawing this connection. So in that interview that you did with David Farrier, you did kind of suggest that given that you keep pointing these things out to the media, but the media is not paying any attention to it, that they might actually be deliberately mangling both the stats and the story, which sounds a little bit conspiratorial. What's your reaction to that kind of claim? Um, <laughs> this Are is you a, a conspiracy uh, theorist, Jay Yusinski? Answer the question. I'll be a little bit general just on this. And this is so I did my dissertation on media coverage and how a lot of it is driven by um, profit incentives, right? Um, so, so I'm 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 cynical about the media to begin with. Uh, I don't think they're involved in a conspiracy, but I think there are a lot of factors that drive news coverage um, outside of just importance to our democratic society. So I I guess the best way for me to approach this is to say, I mean, I get very concerned when I'm asked to either take the side of the mainstream media or the side of conspiracy theorists. Um, Because I don't think people should be, you know, I don't think the answer to something wrong in the media is to go believe a bunch of conspiracy theories. At the same time, I don't think the answer to believing a bunch of conspiracy theories is to go read the mainstream media. Because mainstream media, whether it's news or entertainment, has a bunch of conspiracy crap in there anyway. And I could run down a long list, whether it's the Washington Post running all sorts of UFO nonsense in the last few months or the Animal Planet channel running Bigfoot and mermaid conspiracy theories, or the History Channel running alien conspiracy theories. Um, you know, it, it's even the mainstream stuff has their toe dipped in, <laughs> in into it. Um, and even if you say you're supposed to believe official sources all the time, I mean, the question is, well, which one? Because we have a lot of official sources, like the president, or other politicians um, who are engaging in conspiracy theories and can't always be trusted. And what fact checkers say is, is they lie all the time. And mainstream media, they make a lot of mistakes. And, 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 and that's not to say that they're bad and shouldn't be trusted at all. It's just to say that the media has, a, there's a lot of incentives that drive their coverage. They don't get things right all the time. Sometimes they get things wrong and sometimes they refuse to admit it. And sometimes they just make claims that don't have evidence to back it up. So um, they're the best we've got in terms of information coming out on a deadline that has some semblance of tethered to truth. But I'm not going to tell people, trust the mainstream news all the time. I'm not going to do that. And, and generally what I'll say is, okay, if you have several outlets reporting the same thing with underlying data backing up those claims then you know you, you should put stock in it but until that time just say okay this is what they're reporting and and we'll see how it pans out over time see to my mind this just confirms my hypothesis the only reliable news outlet is the national inquirer because you always know <laughs> what you're going to get it is of a consistent <laughs> quality it may be consistently bad but at least it's consistent it's consistent yeah yeah I mean, that's the thing. It's These are tougher questions than I think we let on. It's like, what should I believe about the world? 
There's no easy answer to that. Who should I trust? There's no easy answer to that. I mean, we can all say there's gonna be better and worse sources, right? But nothing's gonna come easy. Um, it, 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 I mean, the news is evolving, events change, uh, things have to, uh, we're gonna update our conclusions over time. Conclusions are hard to come to that are accurate. Even science where this is what we do, it's, it's, it's hard. So it's, this isn't something where, where we should be like, well, there's just one easy go-to source and everything they say is true. No, sorry. <laughs> yes, you're talking to an epistemologist. This is my bread and butter. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Joe. That has been a wide-ranging conversation about QAnon, the media, and why we should trust only the National Enquirer. So I think everyone, <laughs> everyone's learned a very important lesson. One, you don't like the media. Two, polling data is variable at the best of times because, frankly, there's these polls and, and those polls. And the National Enquirer's story about the skull with only one eye socket is the only thing we should take as being gospel truth at this time <laughs> no i mean just to not overstate i mean i don't hate the media and like i said to david ferrier i'm not i'm not trying to be dogmatic about anything but you get a lot of data and you say okay am i going to go with the data or am i going to go with people saying stuff i'm going to go with the data until such time as the data changes fine um and i'm not going to fall journalists for getting things wrong sometimes. I think they, they're well-intentioned and they work on a deadline and you know they do the best they can with what they have. Um, so I, I, it's, it's just one of those things where um, you know we gotta do the best we can with what we have. Which are very wise words. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> Thank you. So, Joshua, what did you think? What are your thoughts, your feelings, your attributions, your artistic merits, your vivive, your mm. fandango? Yeah, I'll stop you there. Um, first, first of all, how does Joe manage to stay sounding so cheerful when he must be having this conversation probably several times a day, every day, and probably has done so for the last month or so? I think in this case, it's because when you're having that conversation with a friend who knows exactly what the issues are and agrees with you, it's a lot easier to hash those things out than it would be to talk to an incredulous journalist. I think in that case, that probably explains Joe's jolly mood. That being said, Joe is a fairly even-keeled person at the best of times. I just imagine that having that same conversation week in, week out must become tiresome eventually. You would think so. Um, no, but what did I think? Um, I don't think either of you used the term explicitly, but um, confirmation bias, if I remember my cognitive biases, seemed to come up a bit. It's, it, that seemed to be one of, his, um, one of his explanations for why QAnon is popping up in the news an awful lot more than it used to, even if it isn't in reality much more prevalent. Just the, the idea that... Um, uh, if, if you go looking for it, you'll find it. Um, and I, the, the one point you made about, you know, ha having having these rallies, sort of generic rallies where you'll find a, a QAnon crowd there reminded me of the phenomenon that's been around forever, as far as I know, where any time you get a vaguely sort of left-wing rally here in New Zealand, for instance, 
as well as people rallying to that cause, you'll also have um, the various sort of fringe groups that pop up and try to insinuate themselves into every every rally. What are the water ones? There's the one group about about uh, water control here. I can't remember what it is. They're always everywhere. But um, yeah, that, that when you when you, if you put it into that context, then suddenly it does seem a lot less um, sort of alarming and a lot less new, I suppose. Yes, I think we kind of touched on that with the notability criterion. Because it's such a notable movement, it doesn't need to be prevalent to be newsworthy. But the problem is once something becomes newsworthy, then you start seeing it everywhere, and that's where the confirmation bias comes in. Once you're told that, oh, QAnon is everywhere, then suddenly you're going, oh, yeah, I saw a QAnon tweet the other day in a way which you probably wouldn't have even noticed if someone hadn't brought it to your to your attention. So there's a kind mm. of selective attention going on as well. Yeah. Um, and yes, again, sort of uh, the idea that while this appears new, it's possibly just the newest version of a phenomenon that's been around forever. I mean, people worried about the fact that this you've got QAnon as being elected to office at the moment. But in a slightly smaller scale example, how many elected officials were Obama birthers, um, the current president not, uh, notwithstanding? Um, I assume that there have probably been people who believe all sorts of weird conspiracy theories elected to office throughout the history of politics ever. And maybe sometimes that's mentioned and sometimes it just isn't. Yeah, I mean, it is one of those things where some theories catch on and some don't. No one talks about the Iraqi dinar theory, even though there are still enough people out there engaging in that weird currency transaction to be concerning. Um, but yes, once you get into that, that sort of the disconnect between what the polling data sh seems to show and in particular people's personal experiences. I know we've talked in the past about um, David Farrier seems very concerned about this sort of stuff and possibly because he's had, you know, he, he's seen specific instances of individuals going down the rabbit hole. Um, and you can find plenty of stories online of, uh, you know, my, my, my parents went insane, my partner, my partner became a full on Q person and so on and so forth. All these, there's the, what is, what's the Reddit group called? It's not, it's not QAnon widows because it's about families in general, but there, there are specific sites devoted to people talking about how they've lost touch with relatives because of QAnon. Um, and I thought in the light of those those personality predictors that Joe mentioned, the sort of um, the 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 uh, psychological traits that were what, what was the triangle called? The something triangle um, of those three particular traits that are most strongly correlated with QAnon. Um, I do wonder like these anecdotes are always expressed as my perfectly intelligent relatives suddenly became QAnoners, but I wonder maybe there are bits that the people telling these anecdotes leave out or maybe weren't aware of in the first place. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is. there's also the way, as you point out, the way the narrative is framed probably also changes the nature of the story. What else struck to me? Uh, yeah, the, the way Joe is able to actually sort of defend his methods. Um, in particular, I, I, it was good to see the idea that this isn't just, you know, this survey shows blah, 
which is like like the one that you brought up that we mentioned last week. Um, he he has a series of surveys over time, um, so there's there's a lot more robustness. Although I'm uh, I'm sure I'm sure you've talked about this before when we've mentioned Joe. How often does he do these surveys? Sort of what's I the... think it's three to four times a year, right? And he's been doing them for quite a while now, hasn't he? Yes. Yes, I mean, he started polling on QAnon when he became interested in QAnon. So he's been polling on that question for quite some time. Mm. Yeah, so I mean, so in that case, yeah, he does He does seem to have the ammunition to actually say, you know, this, 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 isn't, this isn't a freak finding, um, that there, there is a degree of consistency here and degree of sort of uh, reliability. Um, so it is nice to be able to like because you could you could you could always imagine the situation where you know my poll says this well my poll says that we see that all over the place in different contexts but actually being able to say my poll says this well my my series of polls that I've been conducted several times a year for several years are all saying this um, does does give one a lot more confidence um, in what he has to say although moving on to another point. Um, one thing that did seem to be a, a bit of a problem is simply the way QAnon is defined. Um, like, for instance, now this this was in the um, this is this is something that's come up in the Patreon episodes. I don't think we've talked about it in the main episode, but we've talked briefly a little bit about people um, discussing the phenomenon of QAnoners online sort of disavowing real life QAnon protests and suggesting that maybe they're paid actors or false flaggy, who knows what. Um, and we saw a couple of different takes on that. Uh, one sort of saying, "Oh, they're just you know they're online warriors, and they 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 getting freaked out by seeing this thing um, happen in real life." And then another person said, "Well, no, actually, if you look at how Q was when it formed, it was very much the idea of the thing of of it's all going to be taken for, care of for you. You don't have to worry about this." Um, but it seemed a little bit weird because. Sort of one of these people was looking at QAnon's earliest beginnings, whereas someone other people were looking at the way it's turned into now. And there's been a hell of a lot of change and mutation and all sorts of things being drawn in. Um, and so, in particular, um, Joe seemed to talk about QAnon as uh, baby-eating Satanists who harvest children's adrenochrome are running the country, and John uh, Don Donald Trump is going to take them down, whereas other people. You know, there are other ways of looking at QAnon. Some originally, again, going back to the beginnings, it was a lot more just political. Donald Trump is going to lock up Hillary Clinton and Obama and George Soros and all of those people whose politics you hate uh, before the, the celebrity elites and the and the, the mole children and the adrenochrome came into it. Um, so I do wonder if maybe there's there's something there in the fact that depending on how you define and describe QAnon in the questions, maybe you would get different results. So I think, and I need to go back and check the questions he's been using, particularly for the Pew Research Center stuff. I don't think the questions bake in the baby-eating Satanism version of QAnon. I think it's more a polling question about have you heard about QAnon? So I don't think his polling data relies on defining QAnon in a particular way. It is striking that he kind of characterizes QAnon as having these really extreme beliefs. And then, as we saw in the interview, associates those extreme beliefs with either narcissistic or psychologically troubled characteristics. So there's a kind of 
I mean, I'm, 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 I use a weird term here. There's a particularly pejorative gloss on QAnon belief there. Now, we both take it that QAnon belief is kind of pejorative in the first instance, mm. but Joe's is a much more extreme pejorative gloss on QAnon, and that it narrows the subset of QAnon believers down to this really extreme baby-eating Satanist view. Well, so I actually think we should probably be talking about the larger cohort, which, as you point out may just include people who think that there are operatives in the state working against the deep state, working with Donald Trump to bring it down, one of whom, or several of whom, is this operative called Q who communicates with the outside world. That's a much more plausible version of QAnon, and is probably the one that we should be interrogating and investigating. Because my suspicion is, most people who believe in QAnon believe in that more general hypothesis, and only a few people are committed to the sex pedophiles rule the world hypothesis. Mm. Yes, I mean th- those were those were all the points that um, struck out to me. It's always it's always good to listen to to Joe doing his thing, and he's always interesting to hear from. Um, what else? You you mentioned that you've been talking to a bunch of journalists and stuff. What um, what have people been saying in terms of what they think about how prevalent QAnon is and all that sort of stuff? So, I mean, most of the discussions I'm having with journalists at the moment are discussions around COVID-19 conspiracy theories with a little bit of a feint towards QAnon here and there. What I'm seeing is the kind of thing that Joe has been seeing, which is you discuss the data, such as the stuff which is coming out of the disinformation project through TPM, and the reaction is, but that doesn't reconcile with my experience on things like Facebook. Now, as I said at the top of the show, we do have a limitation with the project with TPM at the mo- moment. We're only scraping Twitter because Twitter has a publicly available API which allows us to harvest a large amount of data. Facebook does not. And people are going, oh, well, maybe things aren't bad on Twitter, but maybe they're bad on Facebook. And my reaction to that has been, well, that might be the case, but polls and polling data like that which Joe produces indicates it actually it probably isn't and confirmation bias is playing a bigger role in your stories than you think. But I am seeing the same kind of reaction Joe is getting. When you start talking about the issue, many people in the media go, no, but that can't be the case because my anecdotal evidence indicates and it's a case of, well, I mean, it's it's fine that you've got anecdotal evidence, but the more robust evidence here is actually looking at polls of what people believe. Now, of course, it might be the case that things are literally different down in our part of the world. Joe is polling Americans. And that being said, Joe also doesn't think that given polls done overseas, America is all that exceptional when it comes to belief in conspiracy theories. So it seems to follow that we probably are seeing the same effects here, but it might be the case things are different here. But I am seeing the same kind of reaction that Joe gets when he talks to journalists about this issue. Well, there you go. Um, Well, we better better, better bring things to a close because... um... The episode is drawing on, and we don't wish to test people's patience any more than we normally do. Um, But before we go, of course, uh, we will be recording a bonus episode 
for our patrons as soon as we're done here. What are we going to be talking about this week? We're going to be talking about Joe Rogan's move to Spotify and what didn't go with him. We'll be checking in on the victims of nerve gas poisonings. And we'll also be asking whether the Saudis are causing issues for a 9-11 investigator. Can't imagine why they'd do that. Uh, But if you'd like to find out, uh, be one of our patrons if you're not already. Um, If you're a patron, good for you. Uh, We we make no secret of the fact that we like you better than everyone else. Uh, Which isn't to say we don't like everyone else who might happen to be listening, for you are our audience and uh, give us a reason to to exist as mortal beings. Um, But if you'd like to become a patron, go to patreon.com and search for the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy. And that's all I have to say on the matter. And that's all I have to say on the matter as well. In that case, I think it just remains for me to say goodbye. And for me to say that 76% of me is saying goodbye. You've been listening to the podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, starring Josh Addison and Dr. M.R. Extenter, which is written, researched, recorded, and produced by Josh and M. You can support the podcast by becoming a patron via its Podbean or Patreon campaigns. And if you need to get in contact with either Josh or M, you can email them at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com or check their Twitter accounts, Mikey Fluids and Conspiracism. It's just a step to the left.